Thank you. If you have your Bibles, do open them back up to Genesis chapter 3. I'm not really going to do an exposition of, of any passage. As you know, we have been looking at uh, different sections of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. And you should have a, a sheet of paper that says that at the top. And this is actually uh, several articles from the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. We're going to be looking at the third article on the fall of man uh, today. So if you want to just look at that, we'll be, we'll be using that somewhat as a guide for us. Does everyone have a copy of this? Uh, anyone need one? Anyone need one? Two or three over here to my left. Anybody over here? Okay, so we'll be using this and you know this is just a guide for us this uh, semester as we're looking at the different articles in the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. I grew up in an area that uh, my church and just the churches around me uh, I don't think we were that much into confessions and of faith. Uh, we pretty much had the Bible. That was our confession. That was our creed. Have you ever heard anyone say that? You know, that's easy to say the Bible is our creed, the Bible is our confession, but there sure are a lot of difference, uh, differences of opinion about what that one book says. I was listening to uh, someone on just a, a video the other day. They were talking about the value of confessions uh, when it comes uh, particularly to, to mega churches, but I think it applies to uh, many situations. Uh, the idea was that without a confession of faith or at least a doctrinal statement of some kind makes it real easy for beliefs to change uh, from pastor to pastor. If it's not written down, you know, a pastor can believe one thing, the next one comes in, he believes something else, and, and just leading the congregation through uh, changes and differences of opinion. So I think there is value in having uh, something written down, this is what we believe, and so forth. And uh, we're going to take a look, as I said, here at this third article in just a moment. Last week we looked at uh, the doctrine of God, uh, of the true God. Dr. Holmes led us in that study, and one of the comments he made was that if you're able to understand and explain God, the, the only one who can do that is God. And I think he was right on with that. Only God is able to explain himself. But when it comes to this one, the fall of man, I think you can say maybe the same thing. It takes a human being to understand that. And I am one. And I can really understand what it means to be a fallen man. Uh, I think this doctrine has helped me the most. Not that I have a perfect theological setting in my mind on all the doctrines. But I think the older I get, the more and more I realize that man is fallen and man is totally depraved. And that grasping that affects all the other doctrines. Dr. Erickson was talking about this a little bit yesterday in a meeting that we had. and He said in theology classes, doctrine classes, he'll actually mention that. If you don't get this doctrine right about man, about men and women and humans, if you don't get this one right, you're not going to get the others right. There's a passage where Jesus says, not all who stand before me call me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will stand before Him, call Him Lord, and say, we did good things, we preached in Your name, we did this in Your name. But He says, depart from Me, you evildoers, because I never knew you. If you think that there's anything good enough in you, 
that you're going to be able to stand before the God Christ one day and convince Him to let you into heaven, you really don't know Him. You do not understand the vast difference between Him and yourself. I thank God the day that He let me know that I was a sinner, it was not a comfortable thing that happened. It did not feel good. It felt awful. But I thank God that He convicted me of my sins and made me realize, Philip, you need to do something with Jesus. And I'm thankful for that. So this article here, Article 3 from the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, it summarizes the fallen man doctrine. We are talking about all humans. And as I said, I mean, I know in my head that there's a true God. I know in my head and in my heart as well, I believe the truth about the Scriptures, the first two articles in the New Hampshire Confession. But I tell you, I know from experience that man is sinful in every thought, word, and deed without the Lord's help. So, fall of man, fallen from what? Let's take a look just at the first part of this uh, statement. It says, we believe that man was created in holiness under the law of his maker, but by voluntary transgression fell from that holy and happy state. So the state of holiness, creation and holiness, was a blessed state. We heard read just a moment ago some of the curse, where the ground was cursed and so forth, but before that it was a holy, happy place before the fall of man. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1.27 that we're made in the image of God. That's where the holiness comes from. Genesis 1.31 says that everything that God made was good. So originally when Adam and Eve were made, it was good and we were made in the image of God. We'll never be God. We'll never be omniscient and omnipresent and so forth like God is. But as the Bible says, even Jesus says, be holy as your Father is holy as God is holy then then we can have holiness we can be sanctified in our lives the fall that occurred was a voluntary transgression with that fell caused Adam and Eve man to fall from that holy and happy state I think that you see a process of sinning I may have spoken about this in chapel before but look at Genesis 3 you see this process of sinning the serpent is crafty in verse 1 and he he comes to to the woman and he says indeed has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden what you see happen here I think it's characteristic of the process of sinning is that it often begins by questioning the Word of God itself there's one word there's one commandment given by God don't eat you know you can, you can eat of any tree just don't eat of that one and you see the serpent coming and giving this twisted version of the word of God that's how most sin happens the woman said to the serpent well from the tree you know of life uh, from the trees we can eat of the garden we may eat but from the fruit of the tree of the middle of the garden will not eat it God said you'll not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. And there's more that can be said about that. But in verse 4, the serpent says to the woman, you surely will not die. That contradicts what God has said. 
there's another contradiction to the Word of God. But the next thing, I think, is the serpent questioning the integrity of God. Because he goes on to say, here, see, here's why God has told you not to eat. It's not because you're going to die. It's basically because God is a bad God. For God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hey, God knows good and evil. He just didn't want anybody else to know good and evil. God gets to have all the fun. He just didn't want anybody else having all the fun. I think you have that type of, a, of an a attitude here from Satan. He's questioned the Word of God. He's questioned the integrity of God. Well, what does Eve do? Well, verse 6, the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took it from its fruit, ate, and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So she looks at it. She thinks that looks like it feel good to my, my stomach. Well, I just like the looks of it. And that could make me wise. You know, John wrote about this in the book of 1 John. I mean, I think he did write about this same type thing. In 1 John chapter 2, he's talking about uh, this, I think, this very process of sinning. In John chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here's the part that is so close to what you see with Eve. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And these lusts are passing away. So what you see here, he talks about the lust of the flesh. That's what Eve had. Think, I'll feel really good if I eat that. Lust of the eyes. That's really delightful to look at this fruit. And then lust or uh, the pride of life. Hey, this could make me wise. So the same thing, the same tricks, the same temptations, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life that Eve experienced, John writes about those near the end of the Bible saying, hey, don't you be fooled by those things either. Because what happened when she let this lust of flesh, eyes, and pride of life get a hold of her, she grabs that fruit and she eats it. She doesn't leave it to herself. She passes it on as well to her husband. Well, that's when they fell. That's when the happy state, the holy state they were in was lost. There's consequence for that. The Confession of Faith goes on to say that in consequence of which all mankind are now sinners, not by constraint, but choice. I think Romans 5, we're not going to look at that, but I want to mention Romans 5 as a real helpful passage there to speak about how one man's sin, but death comes to all men. And there's one man that saves us as well and can bring life to us, and that's Jesus. There's a passage, I think, that helps us in 1 Timothy chapter 2. You know, this all of human history since the fall of man has been a struggle of humans against their Creator. I mean, you see, as you read right, right after Genesis 3, I mean, you see in Genesis 3, you see God making provision by... Uh, killing an innocent animal to provide a skin covering for Adam and Eve. Now they made these fig leaf garments. They may have been nice and fashionable, but they were insufficient. 
And our good works that we do are insufficient to cover our sins. We need someone innocent. You know, maybe you've heard me say before, it would have made a whole lot more sense to me if God had made some kind of snakeskin boots for Adam and Eve. You know, to go along with their outfit. But he didn't. The animal that was slain, whatever it was, was completely innocent. I always think about a deer or something, but I don't know, maybe it was a lamb that was killed to provide a covering. I don't know what that animal was, but I know that it represents Jesus, who, innocent of our sin, shed his blood to provide a covering for us. You see that right at the fall. And then the rest of the Bible is the consequence of that. It's sin and deception and rebellion and lacking faith. All those things describe the human condition now. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, it says this, Paul is writing, he says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy or clean hands without wrath and dissension or without anger and without argument. I do think I can say that the tendency of men is to be angry and to argue and not want to have clean or holy hands. They want to have hands with things on them they want on. But he goes on and talks about women as well. He says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. So if you're claiming to be a godly woman, then dress yourself with good works, not immodestly, uh, not with all kinds of jewelry and so forth like that. I am hesitant to say one way or the other is whether that's the natural tendency of women to dress unmodestly, uh, but I do know it's the tendency of men to want to argue and be angry. Well, Paul goes on to say this, a woman must quietly, I'm looking at verse 11, must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And he goes on to say, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. I know this is a hard passage of Scripture, but there's a reason for it given here, and it's similar to what we've already talked about, about creation. Paul says it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. In his mind, there, there's a reason for that. The man was created first. And that's why he should have the authority in church. And the second thing in verse 14, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So when you see this, Paul looks at it and he says, because the woman was deceived, that's a reason for her to keep silent in the church and not have authority over men. Now, that is not to say that Adam has this glowing report here. He was not deceived. He just transgressed. Now, there's nothing to say that makes men better than women. Not at all. It's, it's worse. The fact that he did know, but he rebelled and was wrong uh, in that. The book of 2 Peter the end of it, chapter 3. Peter writes something here. I want to say this because I think there are folks who think Paul is a, a bigot. And he's anti-woman. Uh, 
But when you look at 2 Peter, the third chapter, he's bringing up Paul's writings. And it's he, he's covering them in general. He is speaking about a specific thing, but then he covers them in general. He talks about Paul, who our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. So Peter is saying Paul's writings are Scripture. He deals with some hard things. They're difficult to understand, and some people twist them and turn them to make them say what they want them to say, and they they do that to their own destruction. When I go back here to 1 Timothy, and you see this part about men and women, you know, I was in a, a church years ago. I was there several Sundays, and there were a couple of men in the church. And the first Sunday, I called on one of the men to pray. Well, his wife starts talking and praying. And eventually, I realized that neither of those men would pray in public. So on the one hand, I might want to say women should keep silent in the church. But really, the question is, men, where were you? Where was the mature man with clean hands, mature enough spiritually to to pray or to lead the church? And so, if, if I am a woman and I'm saying, I want to speak in church, I want to talk, I know it's hard to understand, but Peter says, hey, these are hard to understand, but this is the wisdom given to Paul and it's Scripture. So ladies, you shouldn't be usurping authority over man and so forth in these situations. But men, you should be spiritually mature enough to lead your congregation. Because if you're not with clean hands and you're not mature enough to lead, then you're rebelling against the Creator. You you know, Adam was created first. He's got a responsibility. Men, we need to rise to that responsibility. And, and women, you have a role to play as well. I'm excited about every person we have here, men or women, studying at the seminary. We're not a church. We're not a local church here. But I appreciate you and your listening to me with this. The passage goes on to say this, that it's not by constraint but by choice. We choose to sin on our own. I remember thinking I was studying for a Sunday school lesson years ago, years ago 20 years ago probably. I studied to teach this lesson, and the lesson was on sin. And so I was pretty much on top of all these type things. I was out in my yard raking, and I was thinking about the lesson. It was on Saturday. I was thinking about the lesson I was going to do. And I don't remember the thought, thank the Lord, but whatever it was, I thought, that's a sinful thought. Now here I am about to teach on sin. I'm as alert to sin as it can be, and I thought a sinful thought. And I remember it came to my mind, if Everybody in the world, all of you, were just like Adam and Eve before the fall, and you had never sinned. I guarantee I would be the one that would fall. I'd be the one to eat the fruit. I would be the one to transgress. But the thing is, I'm not the only one who's done that. We're all sinners. We all choose that. Some people say, well, I'm not that bad. We asked the question yesterday, 
you know, how do most people look at this? I think most people look at the fact that, you know, that Adam and Eve are mythical figures. Most people in the world don't think Adam and Eve are real. And then I think most people think that basically humans are good people. But when we look in Romans 3, I'm hoping you'll turn there with me. In Romans 3, Paul is quoting from some Old Testament passages. So both Old and New Testament say these words. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, he's, he's talking about the difference between Jews and Greeks and that everybody's under sin. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, you're sinful. Greek, you're sinful. <clears throat> verse 10, he says this. He quotes, he says, As it's written... There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Listen, I want to tell you this. Back when I was a student here, there was a movement called the seeker-sensitive movement. I don't think it's completely gone, but it was, it was extra prominent in those days. And what the deal was, you do things at your church to make people who are sinners, who are seeking God, feel welcome. You know, the music you have, the, you know, you don't emphasize the Bible so much, tell stories, things like that. Just make them feel comfortable. I never That never quite sat right with me. But then when I read this, I'm like, well, here's why it doesn't sit right. Because there's no one seeking God. So if you set your church up to be seeker-sensitive, you're rebelling against the Word of God. Because the Bible says there is nobody righteous, not even one, and there is none who understands, and there is none who seeks for God. So don't go off having a seeker-sensitive service because nobody is seeking God. All have turned aside, verse 12. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. Not even one. Well, I do good sometimes. I help my neighbor. I, by the end of this, he's going to say that these things are here so that your mouth will be shut. You start saying, well, I, I do good. When you see Jesus... And when you stand before God, and when you see the truth, your mouth will be shut. He goes on to say this, you know, all, uh, in verse 13, Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That describes the human condition. Now you may be sitting here scratching your head saying, I'm not chasing people. My feet aren't running after blood and everything. <coughs> Let's keep going here. He says now in verse 19, we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed. I like the verses that say every mouth will be stopped. And all the world may become accountable to God. See, that's the deal with having a creator. Is that means you're obligated. You're accountable to your creator. That's why people rebel against a creator. That's why so many people don't want there to be a creator. They want it to be evolution because it's survival of the fittest. That means I'm, I'm, I'm strong enough to have gotten here where I am. But if there's not a creator, then I'm not accountable to that creator. But the Bible, the law is given to us so that we see, no, we have a creator to whom we are accountable. Verse 20, Because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
I don't want to know about my sin. That's why I don't go to church. That's why I don't read my Bible. That's why I don't listen to Christian things on, on media or whatever. Because I don't want to know about my sin. Because basically I'm a good enough person. That's how I have concluded. That is a rebellion against God. He goes on to say this, just finally, that, well, verse 20, well, let me read verse 21. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we need to be justified by the gift of God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I tell you, there are going to be people, I think, that stand before God one day and they're going to start in their minds, they'll think. I could be off on exactly how this happens. But I think they're going to rebel against these truths here. My mouth isn't full of evil and my feet aren't swift to shed blood. Here's what I've determined as I've grown older. And it's not just me determining it. It's, it's reality. Our scriptures teach this thing, what we call the total depravity of man. If I start thinking, I'm going to tell God, but well, I've been good. I, I, you know, my mouth's going to be closed. Yeah, but I didn't do it's what everybody, everybody else did. My, my mouth's going to be closed. I'm a sinner. I talk a lot of times about a set of scales. I think that many people think when they get to heaven, they're going to have a big, be a big set of scales up there. And God's going to put our good deeds on one side and our bad deeds on the other. As long as our good outweigh our bad, we're into heaven. I think that's how most people in the world, most religions, basically that's, there's something like that that gets them into the next life, you know. The passage of Scripture that says our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. For years, I thought about that and I thought, wow, how... How bad is my sin? It's like horribly filthy rags. Those rags, I won't go into all the detail, but they're rags that are covered in blood. And I've had a little occasion to be around like a rag that was covered in blood that set out for a few days. And I mean, it, it, it will permeate with, with stench. And I used to think, man, my sin is like that bloody, smelly rag. But that's not what the passage says. It doesn't say my sin is like that. It says my righteousness is like that. Piling up my good on the set of scales. All I'm doing is piling up bloody, smelly rags. As our theology classes say, if you don't get that right, if you don't understand that, then you think you can earn your way to heaven. You might say, oh no, I need Jesus. Yeah, you need Jesus to open the door, but you're going to walk through. And your goodness, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen when you don't realize how bad you are. Some people say, well, I haven't sinned. But First John, the responsive reading we had, you read those verses, John tells you, you say you haven't sinned? You know, you're, you're deceived or you're... I can't remember how it is. One of them is if you say this, you're deceiving yourself. The other, if you say that, 
this other thing, then you're li- you know you're calling God a liar. The one is you say you've never sinned ever. I think that's the one you're calling God a liar because God says you, everybody has sinned. You say I don't have any sin in my life right now. You're deceiving yourself. That's what the Bible says about it. You know I'm wearing one of my nicest suits and one of my nicest shirts and shoes, you know, everything I'm wearing is some of my nicest stuff. I have a Bible in my hand. I'm behind a pulpit. I'm at a seminary. But you know, just like I know, that even with all of this, at this moment, I could have any lust of the flesh, any lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You know, what it boils down to it, any one of us is capable at any time, any place, by any means, doing anything. It's sinful. There's no one of us at no time, in no place, and by no means can we do, there's nothing that we can do to rid ourselves of sin and present ourselves worthy before God to please Him satisfy His demands and earn entry into His eternal kingdom. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do because I'm completely depraved. Instead, I'm under this just condemnation as our uh, statement says. Um, I have sinned by choice and being by nature utterly devoid of holiness required by the law and positively, absolutely inclined to evil. And therefore, under just condemnation, I deserve to be condemned. I deserve eternal ruin without defense or excuse. That's the human condition. Though originally created in holiness, human existence since the fall has been a constant struggle against our Creator. Many deny the existence of a Creator. They deny the existence of the first Adam. And they believe that humans are basically good. To acknowledge a Creator and and my sin obligates me to Him. Without God's grace for me, my whole life has been an effort to free myself from obedience and worship of Almighty God. As directed in Scripture. My words, my thoughts, my deeds have sought my own pleasure and my own praise. The uh, book of Psalms, the 40th Psalm, says this. The psalmist writes, he says, speaking of God, he says, He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He speaks of falling, being in a pit, that God lifted him out of that pit. See, we've all fallen. But thank God, he will raise us up. In the book of um, Colossians, the first uh, chapter, speaking about Christ and our, our, our God, our Father, well, verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. I chose to sin. I am a sinner. I am in that deep, dark pit. And I deserve, as our statement says, I deserve condemnation. I deserve no uh, defense. And yet, God in His love and grace for me and for you, what He did is He reached down and pulled us up out of that. And whereas He deserves to send me to, to eternal damnation, He doesn't. Instead of getting what I deserve, He places me in the kingdom of His beloved Son. Praise God that in spite of my sin, He loves me and His grace is there for me. Well, that's our look at the article on the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. My hope would be that you would see truths to believe and if necessary, the need to confess your sin or the need to change an attitude about your condition, my condition, the human condition. We don't want to talk about it, but God, you know, we're sinners. We deserve it. But Christ deserves our praise. We sang years I spent in vanity and pride. I was saved as a young guy, but everything before that was vanity and pride. But at Calvary, what Jesus did, He certainly deserves glory to His name. Dr. Hill, would you just lead us, say, in the first verse of that glory to His name? I think it's 493. And just read it. Think about the sin and what Jesus did for us. And glory to His name. And that's how we'll end our chapel service today.